It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start in Exodus 34. Uh, I've been walking through, just in my own personal study, uh, walking through a concept that I've just been trying to get my own, <clears throat> my own mind wrapped around. And uh, it's just been one of those interesting studies that as I get into it, uh, it's just like the depth of the word just comes more and more alive and uh, just the, the light of Jesus becomes all the more apparent. Uh, in Exodus 34, just to give some background, <clears throat> uh, Moses has just been up on the mountain for 40 days. Uh, he got the Ten Commandments. He comes down. Of course, there's all that idol worship happening. And so he gets kind of ticked off and throws the stone tablets and he, they break and God says, that was wonderful, uh, now you get to go chisel out your own rocks, and now you get to chisel out the whole thing that I wrote in the first place. And so, <clears throat> in chapter 34, uh, God has given this clarity of, hey, you need to go cut, cut out the rock again, and, and you're going to start writing out the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, as you get down into verse 6, God is giving clarity into who he is and his nature. Now, you've got to remember, in the context of Moses, uh, <clears throat> not too much uh, earlier before this point, probably a couple of months uh, Moses was at the burning bush. Uh, he's been tending sheep for 40 years, and God speaks to him, and God says, hey, I want you to go, and I want, want you to rescue my people. And, of course, Moses asks the question, well, all right, I'm, I'm willing to do that, but when they ask me, who, who is this God who's been speaking to you? And, again, you got to recognize that here are the Israelites in, a, in this pantheon of Egyptian gods. So, all right, we have this God, but what is his name? And God says, oh, let me tell you my name. It's actually unspeakable. <laughs> And God pronounces this unspeakable name of God, which is neat because it is this intimate covenantal revelation of who God is. And when you look at the names of God, and we walked this, we walked this through in the past, but when you look at the names of God, it's interesting. They're not just names. They're a, they're a depiction of his character and his nature. In other words, when God says, I am Jehovah Jireh, he's not just saying I'm a provider. He's actually giving you insight into the very character of who he is. Because a name, at least in the Old Testament, denotes character and nature and attribute kind of stuff. Uh, which is why when you see someone's name being changed from like Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel, it's very significant because it's not just a name change, it's a change of character and nature. So God reveals this intimate, personal name to Moses. And as, as Moses is now with, with God again, you, you recognize that God is giving greater insight into who he is. Now, look at uh, this is Exodus 34, verse 6. Look at what God says about himself in terms of his nature and his character. He says, The Lord passed by before him, speaking about Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, again, it's that covenantal name, uh, merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you recognize that when God says, you want to know who I am? You want to just see the revelation of my character, my nature? He says, this is who I am. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's amazing to me. Yeah, we, we know that God is a God of holiness, that he is a God of justice, uh, that he does bring punishment to sin. Hey, we, we understand all that. But isn't it amazing that when God says, hey, let me reveal myself to you, the revelation that he gives is that he is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in goodness and truth and keeping mercy for thousands. 
the, the concept I've been walking through the last couple of months that's just been profound in me <clears throat> is found in our word, uh, the word mercy. Uh, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And if you've never heard the word hesed, it has been so phenomenal in my personal life. Uh, it's just like the more I'm getting into this idea of what hesed really is scripturally, God has been ransacking my life. And I just want to bring you in on a little bit on this this morning. Uh, in the passage again, God says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed and truth, keeping hesed for thousands of generations. Now, that word hesed is fascinating. It shows up about 250 times in the Old Testament. And when you start looking at how that word is translated, it's almost, it's almost indescribable in a lot of ways. There's like 80 different ways this word is translated in the, in the Hebrew understanding of it. Uh, and just for kicks and giggles, uh, let me just give you a couple of these. Uh, sometimes it's translated love or kindness or loving kindness. Steadfast love is a popular one. Loyalty, favor, mercy, beauty, righteous, devotion, faithfulness, uh, gracious covenant, covenant loyalty, grace, goodness, loving instruction, covenant friendship. All of that's contained in this idea of hesed, which I just think is amazingly beautiful. Uh, one scholar translated it this way, Hesed is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Isn't that a great definition of Jesus? That the one from whom I should expect nothing from has actually given me all things. That here is God. What, do, what, do we actually, what should we expect from God? Eternal punishment. Hell for eternity. I mean, that is actually what we rightly deserve. That the moment that there's any sin in our life, and not to break this to you, but you have sin in your life. <laughs> you know, the whole Paul in Romans is like, hey, we are all sinners, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, which means the punishment for us is eternal damnation. That's what we should expect. Or maybe in a better way, we should expect nothing good from God. And yet the one from whom we should expect nothing from gives us absolutely everything. Isn't that awesome? That is so good. Please tell your faces. I mean, this is good news. I mean, that's awesome. And God says to Moses in Exodus 34, hey, let me give you a revelation of who I am. You know who I am? I am a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in this hesed, abounding in this steadfast loyalty, abounding in this overwhelming love. I'm abounding in this covenantal reality. I'm abounding in this beauty of righteousness and holiness. And I'm keeping, I will keep my hesed for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is awesome. So take that idea then, and I want you, if you have your Bibles, uh, to flip over to First uh, Chronicles <coughs> chapter 16. Now again, that word hesed, uh, again, shows up about 250 times, and don't worry, we're not going to read all, the, all of them. But of those 250 times, there is a couple key phrases that start showing up. Again, God reveals to Moses and says, hey, I am hesed that I keep my hesed for thousands of generations, that I am this overwhelming love, I, I am this loving kindness, I, I, am this, I am this beauty of righteousness and holiness, and I, I show favor and love, and, and I, I have this friendship that you cannot break. Now, David picks up on this, and it becomes almost an anthem throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, and you know the story of David. Uh, David becomes king, and he, uh, he ransacks this place called Jerusalem. And uh, one day he goes, oh, I have this great idea. Uh, let's bring the ark into Jerusalem. And so they, they grab the ark, and as it's coming along, of course, the oxen stumble and falls, and uh, Uzzah reaches his hand out, touches the ark, and poof, he falls down dead. And of course, David says, <laughs> I don't know if we should bring that into the Jerusalem at this point. 
And so he sends it off to a guy's house, and, and eventually God starts blessing the man's house. And David says, well, I want that, so let's, maybe it's time to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And so they, they do it properly this time according to the Old Covenant, and they take the priests, and they're holding, holding the ark, and they're marching the ark into Jerusalem. And, of course, you know the story. Uh, David gets so excited about this, he strips down his boxer shorts, and he starts dancing in, the, you know, dancing in the streets. And, of course, there's a lot of singing and whooping and hollering. And in the whole midst of all that, <clears throat> uh, and, by the way, that whole passage where uh, uh, Mikhail, his wife, or Mikhail, whatever you want to say that, uh, comes to him later and just says, I saw you dancing you know, in, your, in your boxer shorts, and I don't, I don't think that's appropriate for a king. That's a little sketchy. And David, think about this. This is hilarious to me. David he is so overwhelmed by the presence of his God that he looks at his wife and he says, what are you talking about? I will be willing to be even more undignified than this in the worship and the praise of my God. Which you only have one option at that point. <laughs> There's not much left to take off. You know? <clears throat> anyway, you can do whatever you want with that. But anyway, in the midst of this celebration and the midst of this worship of who God is, David begins to have this phenomenal declaration. In fact, it starts in chapter 16, uh, his, his psalm of thanksgiving, starting in verse 8, and it runs all the way down to verse 36. And in the middle of this praise, this, the middle of this adoration for who God is, the, this overwhelming reality of the very presence of God symbolized in the ark has come into Jerusalem, and the, just the overwhelming worship and, and excitement that, that that brings, David makes this statement in verse 34. So uh, 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16, verse 34. David says, in the middle of this psalm of praise, he says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his hesed endures forever. And that, that phrase becomes this anthem which runs through the entire of the Old Testament. Uh, it's interesting, as you, as you get any of the priests together, uh, here's Solomon dedicating the temple. Uh, you, you go through the Psalms. What is, what's interesting is this phrase I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His hesed endures forever. It shows up over and over and over and over and over again. As if to say, hey, do you recognize that God is, he's not just good. He is so overwhelmingly good. Why? His hesed endures forever. This loving kindness that he has, this mercy, this, this grace, this favor, this covenant loyalty which he bestows upon us, that endures forever. Do you, know, do you know how good that is? Because the one for whom we should expect nothing from has given us absolutely everything. Now, take that then and uh, turn over to uh, Psalm uh, 136. Now, as you're turning to one, Psalm 136, let me just give you one other passage. It's from Lament, oops, Lamentations. And Lamentations, of course, Lamentations is a, uh, is a lament, and Jeremiah is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, listen, listen to what Jeremiah says about this idea of hesed. Uh, in Lamentations 3, verse uh, 21, Jeremiah writes, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's hesed that we are not consumed. His compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is his hesed. Isn't that interesting? That here, here is the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and Jeremiah is just overwhelmed by grief and the sadness. But the declaration upon his heart is, wow, do you recognize that even in, the, even in the hardest times, God's hesed endures forever. That he is still a God of loving kindness and mercy and goodness. So look at Psalm 136. Uh, psalm 136 uh, is just this incredible psalm. 
And the reason it's amazing is the word hesed shows up 22 times, or sorry, 26 times in this passage. And if you know anything about scripture, anytime there's repetition, it's there for significance. Because repetition is a great teaching tool. Repetition is a great teaching tool. A great teaching tool is repetition. You getting this? So in Psalm 136 then, uh, the fact that it's, it's repeated 26 times means, hey, this is highlighted. This is huge. Hey, don't miss this, is what the psalmist is saying. Now, what's happening in Psalm 136 is that the psalmist is recounting the history of Israel. And as they're recounting the history of Israel, the declaration of that is, oh, for God's hesed endures forever. Again, it's, it's taking that declaration that David wrote and is using it in every single verse. And it was basically a participatory psalm where there would be a reader up front and they would read the first line and then the congregation would repeat back, oh, his hesed endures forever, over and over and over again. So, since we're a little congregation this morning, we are going to participate and we're going to have some fun. <clears throat> now again, you can translate this word uh, mercy, you can translate this word loving kindness, you can translate this word faithfulness, and depending on what translation you have, uh, you may have one or all of those. Uh, but again, it's that idea of hesed. So what I want to do is, uh, I want us to walk through this, and I want to read Psalm 136. And I want you just to ponder this idea that in every situation of the Israelite life, whether it was good or whether it was bad, the reminder is his hesed still endures. Hey, he has not abandoned us. His mercy is still there. He is overwhelmingly faithful. He is full of loving kindness. So what we're going to do is we're going to use a, different, a few different translations, but let's start with mercy. You guys willing to do this? <laughs> It's going to be fun. <clears throat> so I'll read the first line, and then we can all just declare back, for his mercy endures forever. And don't be like little mice. Be bold as men, as lions, uh, and declare forth uh, the hesed the of our Lord. So Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made the great heavenly lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his mercy endures forever. All right, let's switch it to loving kindness. Uh, to him who struck down uh, in Egypt their firstborn, for his loving kindness endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his loving kindness endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea into two, for his loving kindness endures forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness endures forever. All right, let's switch it to faithfulness. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his faithfulness endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his faithfulness endures forever. And slew mighty kings, for his faithfulness endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his faithfulness endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his faithfulness endures forever. And gave their land for a possession, for his faithfulness endures forever. Even an inheritance to Israel his servant, 
for his faithfulness endures forever. Now let's just use the word hesed and basically encompassing all of that. <clears throat> Who remembered us in our low place for his hesed endures forever and has redeemed us from our enemies for his hesed endures forever. Who gives food to all people for his hesed endures forever. Give thanks unto the God of heaven for his hesed endures forever. Are you getting the tone of what the psalmist is trying to get you to understand? That, hey, when God brought great victories, whoo, man, his hesed just, it never ends. Hey, when we're going through trials and the Red Sea's in front of us and the, and the army's behind us, hey, his hesed is still there. Isn't it any thought that whether you're going through a good time or a bad time, and just as a reminder, whichever one you're going through, it, this too shall pass. <laughs> I mean, it's going to switch at some point. You recognize that God never leaves you. He's never going to forsake you. Why? Because he's a God full of mercy and truth. He's a God of favor and loving kindness. He has covenantal love and friendship. That he just says, hey, my covenant, my loyalty, my love endures forever. That, that I will keep it for generations and generations. And, and I, will never, I, I will never go against my mercy and kindness. I'm confident that if, if that somehow we would grab a hold of that idea, it would change how we lived. That somehow in the middle of our hard seasons when we're going through trials or difficulties or some crazy temptation, we could literally stand upon a bedrock of truth that says, God, you are, you are so good and you are so loving and you have not abandoned me. And even though I don't see a way out of this, I know that you have provided one. That, hey, there's a red sea in front of me and two mountains on two of the sides and, and, and uh, an army coming up the back, but but hey, I trust you that your hesed endures forever and that you're smack dab in the middle of the situation and you're right here in the middle of my family and, and you're, you're dealing with my finances and, or whatever it may be for you, my broken leg, you know, whatever it may be. That, that God has not abandoned you, that he's smack dab in the middle of all that. That is so good. Now you realize that Jesus, when Jesus came, he was the word made flesh, that he was the entirety of what God was doing and he says, all right, here I am, I'm gonna put it in flesh. So when you look at me, you see the revelation of who God is. That, hey, that if you take the Old Testament and you were to put skin on it, you would have Jesus. That he's, he's not, he wasn't like one way in the Old Testament and then another way in the New Testament. He, he's always the same. That he has the same character and nature. And God says, I am a God of hesed. So guess what you should see in Jesus? Hesed. And isn't it interesting as you, again, it's, it's Hebrew. So in our, in our New, New Testament, uh, which is written in Greek, you don't see the word hesed, but it, it's translated grace or mercy most of the time in the New Testament. And do what, do what the writers of the New Testament consistently say about Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. He, he is truth. He is grace. He's the fullness of mercy. What, what are they hinting at? Hesed. That he is the hesed God. That he is the one who has come, and he's the one who is willing to show hesed to thousands of generations. Maybe the best demonstration of hesed is the cross. That while, while we should expect nothing from Jesus, he gives us absolutely everything because he gives us life. Now, really quickly, if you have your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> I just want to finish with this. Uh, it's interesting as you look at the parables and, the, and the, the message of Jesus, an undercurrent of all that becomes this idea of hesed. <clears throat> and uh, and you, you, you obviously know Luke 15 well. Uh, but Luke 15 is a story of three lost things. Uh, we have a shepherd with his lost sheep, and then we have a woman with her lost coin, and then we have the story of a father with his lost son. And, and you know the stories well, but it's interesting that a lot of times we, we kind of look at them individually and we forget that there's a flow in, in the story. 
And obviously Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and, and, uh, and the Pharisees are frustrated because he's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners and, you know, people like us. <laughs> you know? And uh, the Pharisees, these uh, religious leaders are all, all bent out of shape because, well, Jesus, why are you hanging out with the, the scruff of the world? And he says, do you not recognize that, that my father's heart is for that? Because he's hesed. And so Jesus, let me tell you three stories. It's interesting as you look at the three stories, they, they start broadly and they narrow their scope. In other words, you have a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and it narrows down to a woman with ten coins, and then it narrows down to a father with two sons. So you can just kind of see that the intensity increases. Uh, and I won't read the whole passage, but just I'll recap the stories for you. In the, in the first story, Jesus says, hey, here's this shepherd, and he has a hundred sheep. Now, likely in this culture, it probably means that he's looking over the, the community sheep, because it's very rare that one person would have a hundred sheep. It'd be really wealthy. So more likely is the fact that he had community sheep and uh he looks and he starts counting them he goes oh no bertha's gone again she's gone off wandering in the wilderness and uh and he leaves the 99 now realistically you do not leave 99 sheep because the moment you leave 99 sheep how many are lost 100 sheep <laughs> sheep are dumb right and they they isn't it interesting that the only animal that i can even think of in the entire animal kingdom that demands a shepherd is sheep. In other words, you will never see a wild flock of sheep roaming around out, out in the wilderness. That never happens. Why? Because sheep are dumb. Sheep have to be led to water. Sheep have to be led to green pastures. Sheep have to be protected from the wild animals. And isn't it a wonderful thought that you are compared to sheep? <laughs> God did not compare us to cattle. He did not compare us to lions, as great as that would be. He says, you know what you are? You are dumb sheep. That's just so painful. <laughs> you know? Why? Because sheep demand a shepherd. Guess what you demand? A shepherd. That's actually, that's awesome. And just as a, a sheep need a shepherd to lead them and guide them and protect them, that's what we need. And so Jesus says, hey, here's this shepherd who's obviously a picture of God, and he has 100 sheep, and he loses one. So what does he do? He leaves the 99, but realistically, he's either going to put them in a pen and close the pen, or he's going to grab some of his hired hands and have them wash the sheep so he can go search for the one. Because, again, you don't just leave 99. Otherwise, you're going to go wandering, and you're going to lose all of them. So here's a shepherd, and he goes off into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness of, what, of the time of Jesus, you recognize, is a desert. It's not like our Rocky Mountain wilderness. I guess when I was a kid, I always imagined, like, Rocky Mountains, you know, the wilderness. But we're talking desert. There's, like, nothing. There's all these deep crevices, and there's wild animals, and there's robbers, and isn't it amazing that here's a shepherd for one dumb little sheep is putting his life at risk to the elements, to wild animals, to the robbers, and hey, he finally finds a sheep, and it probably fell down in some crevice, and so he takes his shepherd hook, and one of the reasons he has a hook on it is so that he can reach down and grab it, and then he puts the sheep up on his, uh, up on his shoulders, and uh, a typical shepherd will hold the feet of the sheep, and the reason he'll do that is because it calms the sheep down, because it, it recognizes the very presence of the shepherd, and he brings it back to the, to the 99. Now, it says that when he comes back, he brings the whole town together, and they have a community celebration. Isn't it awesome that it's not just the shepherd who celebrates the return, it's the whole community. I think that's amazing. So, again, we have 100, we lose one. Jesus, let me tell you another story. <clears throat> uh, there's this woman who has 10 coins. Now, you recognize that in this culture, uh, they're very different than our culture. They didn't just carry coins around. Uh, it was more of a barter kind of a system. And uh, so the fact that a woman even had coins was very rare. 
And the ladies that did have coins, it was typically because of an emergency. So they would have a little pouch that had maybe a couple coins, and that way if they were out somewhere and they got in trouble, they at least had some emergency fund kind of stuff in case nobody could help them. So here's this lady, and she's in the house one day, and she's counting her coins, and, oh, no, I just lost one. What am I going to do? And so she starts looking everywhere. Well, their houses are not like our houses, right? Their houses were made out of stone, and, uh, and they, they usually didn't have windows, probably because you didn't have glass, right? So you don't want to have all the elements come into your house. And uh, so which means it's dark. They, they may have had, like, a little slit at the very top, uh, but there wasn't much light. So you, you had these little candles, so if you can imagine this, you, you lost one of your coins, and where did it fall? Down into the stone, dirt ground. Well, that's, that's, in, that's terrifying. Why? Because that's, that's, my, that's my salvation. Hey, that's my hope. So what does she do? She lights all the candles. She starts dusting every corner, trying to find the coin. By the way, uh, as the archaeologists nowadays have been looking at all these old houses in Israel, guess what they keep finding in the floorboards, in the, in the stones, and in, in the dirt? They keep finding coins. Isn't that interesting? I think that's hilarious. So here's this woman, and she finds her coin. So what does she do? Isn't it interesting? She doesn't celebrate by herself. She gathers the whole community together and says, hey, I just found my coin. Let's celebrate together. And it becomes a community celebration. So you have a shepherd with 100 sheep who loses one, finds one, community celebration. You have this woman with 10 coins, loses one, finds it, community celebration. And then Jesus says, oh, let me tell you this story, the prodigal son. Now my guess is if you've ever grown up in the church, you've... You've known this story. You could probably quote back this story. And my guess is you actually have never really gotten a hold of what this story actually means. Because we've never seen it in light of culture. And the moment I started looking at this in light of culture, it changed everything for me. So if you'll permit me for just a second, uh, I want to give you a quick insight in terms of the culture. Uh, Israelite culture <coughs> uh, in this day and age <coughs> was, a, uh, was, was very community driven. In other words, in the West, we're very individualistic. Right? So, hey, you want to go out for a Coke? And you're like, I'll make the decision, yes. Right? If you go to the east, like in Asia countries, and you're like, hey, you want to go out for a Coke? Let me, let me ask my family, and I'll get back to you. Right? Missionaries have been finding a really, it's been interesting as missionaries go to <clears throat> the east, because it's like, hey, do you want to accept Jesus? I'll ask my family. I'm not asking your family. I'm asking you, do you want to accept Jesus? I'll ask my family. But, you, but they don't think individual. They think community. That's this, this, this group. Uh, in, in the time of Jesus, it was a, it was a big high uh, honor-shame culture. And the reason, the reason we don't do things against the community is because it's a shame thing. And you do everything you can not to bring shame. So listen to the story then. Here's a son who comes up to his father and says, Father, uh, I wish you were dead. Yeah, I want my inheritance. Which basically just means I want you dead. So hey, Dad, could you, could you give my inheritance? Now again, they, it is, it's not a liquid society. They don't have just cash. They don't have banks where they have a whole bunch of money. They have property. They have animals. They have items. So the only way that the father can get the items or the money to the son is that he has to suddenly sell all this stuff. And again, in this culture, it usually takes months and months and months to sell things. Why? Because you have to debate and argue and look over everything really closely. So the fact that the son wants instantaneous money probably means that the father had to sell it as like a flash sale, like a garage sale, bottom prices, you know, get the horse that usually is $10, I'll give it to you for a penny, kind of, a, kind of, kind of an idea. And so here's the father, <clears throat> he sells part of his estate, and gives the money to the kid. And what does the kid do? He runs off to a foreign country, and he just wastes it on wild living. And you can come up with whatever that might mean. And uh, finally, uh, there's a famine that happens, and he comes to, the end of his, comes, comes to his senses, and here he is, he's, he's feeding pigs. 
And it's interesting, of course, in this culture, pigs and Jews don't mix because, you know, pigs are the bad things. So the fact that here's a good Jewish boy, good, being willing to feed the pigs means he's not just at the very bottom. He is like the rock of the bottom, I mean the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And, of course, he's sitting there going, well, I, even the servants of my dad do better than this. I should go home and apologize. So he cleans himself up, and he starts walking home, and he's thinking, okay, how am I going to say this? And, and isn't it amazing that he doesn't even get just to the crest of the horizon of where his dad's house is, that the dad who's been looking out the window every single day for his son sees this little figure, and he goes running toward him. Now, you've got to recognize that in this culture, men do not run. Amen. Amen. Boys run. Why? Because they're the errand boys. Hey, you go do the errands. But men, in fact, the slower you walked, the more important you were seen. So as good Jewish men, you walked slowly, right? And another reason you don't run is because you'd have to bare your legs. They're wearing those little toga thingies, you know, those little dresses. Awkward, right? Uh, if you're going to run, you can't, you can't, you can't, you don't have much leg space. So the only way you can run is you have to pick the thing up, bare your legs, like you're holding, you're holding your little skirty thing up, right? So your legs can actually move. So think about what this father did. The father was willing to shame himself for the sake of his son. He, he goes and grabs it. He bears his legs. Probably never seen the light of day in, in his life. But he bears his legs, and he starts running to the son. So he not only bears his legs, but he runs. And he shames himself on behalf of the son. Do you know what that's called? Hesed. That here's the kid who should expect nothing from his father. In fact, he didn't expect anything from his father. He says, can I just be a servant? And what does the father do? He shames himself on behalf of the son. In fact, the father redeems the son and says, hey, you're not going to be a servant. I'm gonna, you're, you're your son. And puts the ring on the finger and the robe on his back. And here they are in the middle of a famine. And customary might be a chicken. And if you're really important, might be a lamb. But you recognize what the father does. He says, get the calf, the most valuable animal that they had, and kill it in the middle of a famine. Why? Ah, oh, my son has returned. Do you know what that's called? Hesed. Now, here's what's interesting. Did you know that that was a normal story that every Jew in Jesus' day would have known? Isn't that interesting? That was a common story told by Jewish fathers to tell their children not to shame the family. But Jesus changed the ending. Isn't that interesting? In the original story, the son comes up to the father and says, Father, I, I want you dead. Uh, can I have my inheritance? Now, it's a community culture, which means it didn't just shame the father, it shames the entire community. So when the son leaves, the whole community is offended. So when the son comes to his senses and returns back to the community, in the original story, the community sees him in the distance, rises up, runs out to the son, and stones him to protect the honor of the father. So it's interesting to me that Jesus changed the entire ending of the story. And he says, hey, the son was coming up the hill, the father saw him. And all, all the, everyone he's, he's talking to goes, ah, can't wait for this, they're going to stone the kid. And Jesus says, do you know what the father did? Because of his overwhelming hesed, his overwhelming love for his boy, he was willing to take on the shame of himself, bare his legs, and run to his son. Why was the father running? 
probably to get to him before the community did to protect him from the community. Do you know what that's called? Hesed. Do you know what God's done for us? That. That we didn't deserve it, but he was willing to shame himself. He was willing to take all the blame. He was willing to take all the hostility. He was willing to bear our sin upon the cross, which we did not deserve, so that he could have relationship and intimacy and fellowship with us. And God says, you know who I am? I'm a God who's hesed endures forever. I'm a God who, whether in the good times or the bad times, hey, I endure. That this doesn't change. That this hesed love, this overwhelming love and covenant and friendship and favor and beauty, that, that never ceases. In fact, as Paul would say, that, hey, you could be rebelling against God and shaking your fist in his face, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is that? That's hesed. That I deserve punishment. But what does God give me? Forgiveness, salvation, life. If I'll embrace it and accept it. So I think for us this morning, my encouragement or my exhortation would be, could we somehow grab a hold of that afresh? Could, could we somehow see God as he truly is? Could we somehow realize that he is a God of hesed, loving kindness? That he is a God that, that we may have taken our inheritance and just squandered it, and we may have taken our potential and just squandered it, and we may have just wasted our life, and yet God is still willing to shame himself on our behalf because his hesed endures forever. And I don't know what's going on in your life, but could I somehow take this idea that whether it's a good time or a bad time or a crazy time or I got finances or family issues or whatever it may be in your life, a broken leg, hypothetically, you know, whatever. Whatever it may be, could I recognize that God's hesed endures forever? That it has not changed. He has not abandoned us. He has not just left us to our own devices. He's not just that, hey, if if I'm being onslaughted by temptation, he is faithful and he is victorious and in Christ you can be more than a conqueror. Why? Because he has hesed love and he has not abandoned us. Hey, his hesed is new every morning, says Jeremiah. And we need to to embrace that. We need to grab a hold of that because if we don't, let me say it this way, if we do, that changes everything. It changes how I face temptation. It changes how I see difficulties. It changes how I look at my finances when I look at the bank account. Hey, it changes how I look at my future. It changes how I, it changes every aspect of my life when I begin to recognize that God is a God of hesed and his hesed endures forever. We need, we need to grab a hold of that. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. And Lord, I personally am overwhelmed by the fact that, <clears throat> that you are a God of hesed and that your hesed endures forever. And Lord, what would, it, what would it mean in my life if I could somehow see you as the God of hesed? If I could somehow see you as the God who is good? Somehow I can see you as a God who is so merciful. And that even when I do stupid stuff, and even though I don't deserve anything from you, you still give me everything. Because you just can't help yourself. Lord, I don't want to take advantage of that, but oh, I want to get wrapped up in it. And somehow, Jesus, could you allow us to recognize the fact that, that you are hesed? That the undercurrent of all that you were doing was flowing out of this hesed love? That, this, that the heartbeat of who you are is, is mercy. And yet, you're one of holiness, and yes, you're justice, and yes, you're going to judge this world, but 
but you are so patient and long-suffering that we would repent. Lord, I pray that whatever we may be facing in our life, that we would recognize that you are Hesed. And that you, whether it's in our finances or our family or our health or situations or friends or whatever it may be, that, that you want to demonstrate your Hesed in and through our lives. Lord, this world desperately needs Hesed. This is a dark days, Jesus, and we need light. And you are the light. So would you somehow blaze afresh in our life and allow your character in your nature just to ooze out of every pore of our body and change and transform our world? Thank you for such an opportunity. Thank you that we have the chance to embrace and be loved by a God who is full of hesed. We love you. We just give you the praise and the glory. You are worthy. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.